Grammar Girl here. I'm Mignon Fogarty, and you can think of me as your friendly guide to the English language. We talk about writing, history, rules, and cool stuff. Today, we'll talk about the word Muslim. We'll go through the major annual updates to the AP Stylebook, always fun. And I have a family-like story that may have a Norwegian element, and I'll need your help to figure it out. We got this question from Dan Leibert about the word Muslim in the Facebook group a few weeks ago, and I wanted to get to it this week since we're in the middle of the Islamic holy month of Ramadan. Dan wrote, quote, Is there any preference for Muslim, spelled M-U-S-L-I-M, versus Moslem, spelled M-O-S-L-E-M? I use them interchangeably and was wondering if one was the preferred usage when referring to people who practice the Muslim faith. I can see that Facebook has the M-O-S-L-E-M spelling underlined in red. Is that significant? Unquote. Thanks, Dan. It is significant. The M-O-S spelling used to be common, but today dictionaries and style guides say to spell it M-U-S-L-I-M. For example, the Merriam-Webster online dictionary says Muslim with an O was, quote, formerly common but now old-fashioned, increasingly rare, and sometimes offensive, unquote. So Muslim it is, M-U-S-L-I-M. Facebook was doing you a favor by adding that red underline to the other spelling. Also, Muslim is capitalized, and according to Edam Online, it's from the Arabic word Muslim, lowercase, and spelled like the current recommended spelling, which means one who submits to the faith. And the Oxford English Dictionary notes that the current spelling is now the generally preferred one because it's closer to that Arabic word from which it comes. So if you're older, Muslim with an O may be the spelling you learned— And you may even worry that you're doing it wrong if you spell it the currently proper way, like Dan did. But you don't need to worry. The recommendations have changed. Every year, the editors of the Associated Press announce changes to the AP Stylebook at the annual meeting for ACES, the Society for Editing. Sadly, the conference didn't happen this year, but they still held a virtual event, and I was thrilled that the AP presentation was still part of that. I attended the presentation by Paula Froke, the AP Stylebook editor, and Colleen Newvine, the AP Stylebook product manager. I live-tweeted the presentation, and I'll summarize the main points for you today. And in case you're wondering, AP Style for live-tweeted calls for a hyphen. I had to look up that one. It was a bit of a quiet year for updates. There were no shockers like we had in some previous years, like when they said it's now okay to use more than to mean over, or to write email without a hyphen, or to lowercase the word internet. Probably the biggest news this year is that they're going to stop producing a new edition of the print book every year. They'll now print a new version every two years. It makes sense because more and more people are using the online version of the style guide. I usually get both, but I do use the online version much more often than I reach for my print book. The other big piece of news, at least for me, was something that didn't happen. The editors had been saying they were going to do a complete overhaul of the numerals section of the stylebook in this release, but they didn't. They said it ended up taking more time than they expected, but they do still plan to do it in the future, so we can still look forward to that. As far as style changes go, the change that will probably affect the most writers is that it's now okay to use pled as the past tense of the verb to plead, as in squiggly pled guilty. 
Paula said they'd received a lot of feedback from writers who wanted to use plaid. So in her words, they took away the school marmish admonition not to use plaid. They had previously called it colloquial, but you can now use it if you want to. I will note, though, that Garner's Modern English Usage and the Chicago Manual of Style still do recommend pleaded over pled, as in squiggly pleaded guilty. It's what I'll continue to use, but you are now not violating AP style if you choose to use pled. The other big change probably won't affect as many writers, but it did get a lot of attention during the presentation. AP style will now allow writers to use the word preheat, as in preheat the oven. I know, I told you it was a slow year. (laughs) In the past, the argument was that preheat is redundant. You heat the oven. Preheating isn't any different. They had recommend saying just heat the oven to 350 or whatever temperature you needed. But given that ovens often have a preheat button, and recipes tell you to preheat your oven, and it's just the word that every reader knows, they decided to allow it. They also solicited feedback about the change on Twitter before making it, and people really like preheat. People wanted preheat. Some people even argued that preheat could have a slightly different meaning, and without it, people might put their food in the oven before the oven's ready. I kind of doubt that, but either way, AP writers can now use the word preheat with abandon. This next change didn't seem to jump out to many other people, but I thought it was interesting and could come up somewhat regularly. They now recommend not to use the word midnight. They found that many people disagree about whether it's the end of the previous day or the beginning of the next day, and ultimately they decided the word is more confusing than useful. Clarity is the goal, so don't use midnight. Instead, they recommend you be more specific. Write either 11.59 p.m. Thursday or 12.01 a.m. Friday, or whatever day and time you mean. Specificity also came into play with updates to the entries on sexual crimes. They made significant updates to these sections, and if you write about these topics, you should check out all of them. But the standout general advice was to be sure you're being specific and accurate with your language, because a lot of the terms have precise legal meanings. They also did a significant update to the weapons entry, and again, a lot of the advice was about being more specific with your language. There was also a significant update to the gender-neutral language section, which led to a vigorous discussion in the chat about the gender-neutral version of fishermen, after Paula said that although they'd recommended a lot of new gender-neutral terms, they obviously hadn't covered everything, and sometimes you just have to use your best judgment. For example, she said, they hadn't made a recommendation for an alternative to fishermen. So I'll end with this today because it was a fun discussion. Many people suggested the word angler, which appealed to me at first, too. But then many other people pointed out that angler seems to describe someone using a pole to fish rather than professionals who go out in big boats and use nets or other gear like crab pots. Fish folk and fisher folk were two other common suggestions, and it seems as if fisher folk may be in common use in Asia— Sarah Rossi said that, quote, economic development agencies in Asia Pacific call people who fish for a living fisher folk, unquote. And Sophia Romero, who goes by Mighty Red Pen, said, quote, 
Fisher Folk was what we used when I worked for a nonprofit that supported projects that helped Fisher Folk in Asia, unquote. Also, if you do a Twitter search, you find a lot of people who seem to be in Asia using it. So Fisher Folk is definitely an option. People had funny comments about it too, though. A Twitter user with the handle Laxtima Able said, quote, Fish folk sounds like the working class version of merfolk. It's like they're the salt of the earth, but they're actually the salt of the sea, unquote. And Brandon Bullard said, fish folk has a Lovecraftian ring, like a more derogatory reference for someone who has the Innsmouth look, which is something from an H.P. Lovecraft short story, Shadow Over Innsmouth. So I'd be a little wary of using fisher folk in North American English. And before you email me about the pronunciation of Innsmouth, I listened to clips from about 10 different lectures and audiobooks and half pronounced it Innsmouth and half pronounced it Innsmouth. So I did my best. <laughs> but back to fishing. An alternative that Gina MacArthur says they use in Newfoundland is fish harvester. And getting back to all the bee-specific advice from the AP Style book, Rita Owens says she grew up in New Bedford, Massachusetts, a great seaport, and they would often call people scallopers or clamors. Another possibility suggested by both Jack Polara and Paul Parsons is piscator, an archaic word that we originally borrowed from the Latin word for the verb to fish. It's the same root that gives us piscatology, the practice or study of fishing, and the more familiar word Pisces, the astrological sign whose symbol is the fish. Nevertheless, the term that people seem to have settled on in North America, though, is simply fisher. Alec Fromage pointed out that it may sound odd at first, but it's actually similar to farmer and rancher. In fact, Martin Dumphy said, quote, I've seen Fisher used for decades now. I thought it was a given, actually, unquote. And the lexicographer Liz Potter said that Fisher is the term used in the law of the sea. Webster's New World College Dictionary and the online edition of the Merriam-Webster Dictionary also include Fisher as a person who fishes. So after going through the entire discussion a couple of times, I recommend Fisher Folk if you're writing for an Asian audience. But Fisher, if your audience is in primarily English-speaking countries, unless your local industry or government uses something else. And I'll finish with some of the funniest tongue-in-cheek suggestions. Jeffrey O'Malley suggested fishist. Kevin Lamb suggested, among other things, fishmeister. And Heather Johnson, who goes by Linguistics Girl, suggested fish procurement worker. Thanks to everyone who participated in that discussion. It really was a lot of fun. Finally today, I have a family-like story from Mark, and I need your help on this one, too. You'll see why at the end. Hi, Mignon. This is Mark in North Carolina, formerly of Minnesota. Um, I have a family-like story for you, um, and I think it's a family-like. Anyhow, it's something that only my mom's side of the family used, and there are two words. One is punsy, and one is bougie. Punsy is the same thing people think of when they need, like, tender, loving care, TLC. So if you're feeling punsy, then what you need in return is bougie. So, of course, I get called out by a fifth grade teacher for me trying to explain to the class what punsy and bougie were. And they all looked at me like a confused golden retriever. But um, because this came from my mom's side of the family, 
and also used by other friends of direct Norwegian descent. I don't know if it comes from some old Norwegian slang or not. But anyhow, that's my family. Love your show. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks, Mark. Your story made me laugh a couple of times. But I don't know enough about Norwegian to be able to tell you whether there might be a tie to a real word or slang here. If any of you listeners know, please let me know. You can leave a comment on the Grammar Girl Facebook page or write to me on Twitter. I'm Grammar Girl at both, or you can leave a voicemail at 83321 girl That's 83321-44475. Also, I loved seeing some of your pictures showing where you listen to the podcast, and you can keep posting those at Twitter and Instagram with the hashtag WhereIListen. And because social media handles are a pain, I am the Grammar Girl at Instagram. I'm Mignon Fogarty, better known as Grammar Girl. You can find all the Grammar Girl articles at the home of my network, quickanddirtytips.com. Thanks to my producer, Nathan Sems. And that's all. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>